It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. I'm Greg Gutfeld. I'm Martha McCallum. I'm Brett Baer, and this is the Fox News Rundown. Tuesday, March 8th, 2022. I'm Dave Anthony. Russia's invasion and its financial impact, especially a surge in gas prices, has become a big issue here. A Republican running for Senate in Pennsylvania tells us... This is a time where we need people who understand the military, understand national security, and who understand the economy. And nowhere is that more clear than Ukraine. I'm Jessica Rosenthal. As Ukrainians flee, so too are some Russians as their economy struggles due to sanctions and corporate boycotts over the attack in Ukraine. There are thousands and thousands of Russians flooding into Armenia and Yerevan. And of course, the real estate prices and apartment rentals skyrocketed about three to 500 percent already within just the last 10 to 12 days. And I'm Kevin Walling. I've got the final word on the Fox News Rundown. Republicans have been very critical of President Biden handling Russia and inflation. If this administration does not majorly correct its course, the American people may correct course for them this coming November. Mitch McConnell hopes to go from minority to majority leader in the Senate. In the Fox News power rankings, there are five seats up for grabs considered toss-ups, four held by Democrats. Just one is Republican. In Pennsylvania, where there are races in both parties to fill the seat of GOP Senator Pat Toomey, who's not running for re-election. On the Republican side, Dr. Mehmet Oz is the most well-known candidate, telling the Fox News rundown last week. I had a wonderful life. I owe a debt to this nation. I intend to repay it fully. One of his close rivals in the race is Dave McCormick, who believes what's happening in Ukraine makes him uniquely qualified. It reinforces the need to have people elected to the Senate that uh, don't need any on-the-job training. He's a former Deputy National Security Advisor and Undersecretary of Commerce and Treasury in President George W. Bush's administration. I went to West Point and then served in the 82nd Airborne Division, which, which by the way, has just been deployed to Poland. And, uh, and then I'm someone that served in the Army for five years and uh, a combat vet in Iraq and then came back to Pennsylvania and, and ran a big company and created 600 jobs. And, uh, and so this is a time where we need people who understand the military, who understand national security, and who understand the economy. And, and nowhere is that more clear than Ukraine, a byproduct of the terrible positions, terrible decisions of Joe Biden. The first being this, uh, this absolute debacle in Afghanistan, which is a combat veteran, just left me sick to my stomach, the lack of accountability, the incompetence. And really the weakness that it showed to the world. And I remember saying at the time, I'm fearful that that's going to invite other bullies in China and North Korea and Russia to take action. And, and sadly, it has. But the second was that the, the war on energy and it's made us energy dependent when we were on our way to energy dominance under President uh, Trump. And it's also uh, empowered Putin because uh, he got the signal that Europe was going to be highly dependent on him, which was going to make them less likely to move. So we're in a in a situation now where the the moves that Putin have made are the direct result of bad decisions. And now we have to, to we have to show strength. We have to make this very painful for for uh, Putin and have him pull back. At the same time, we have to do that in a way that doesn't 
get our U.S. Uh, sons and daughters, our soldiers engaged in a land war in Europe. And we've, uh, we've obviously had a lot of economic sanctions imposed on Russia from the U.S. and our allies. Russian oil, there's a big debate about whether the U.S. should just turn off the spigot, ban Russian imports, although there are a lot of buyers in the oil market that have already stopped purchasing Russian oil. Tough to do yeah. business with the Russians. So I'm not that that conversation may not be as necessary. But what do we do with the surge of gas prices as a result? How can we stop that? Well, I think uh, I, I do think we should um, first and foremost reverse the terrible energy policies of, of Biden. So you had a combination of killing the Keystone pipeline. You had a regulatory blanket that went on top of our energy industry. It uh, created uncertainty. It killed capital investment. Um, there was all sorts of regulations that were put in place. And we need to pull back on that. And we need to pursue energy dominance. We're uniquely blessed in our country with incredible energy resources. And by the way, on the natural gas front, which is Pennsylvania is one of the greatest natural gas reserves in the world, it's far cleaner than most forms of energy. So the great irony of Biden is that in his pursuit of the environment above all other things, he's hurt our economy, he's hurt our security, and he's made the environment worse, which is which is which is really terrible. So first and foremost, we need to reverse those policies. Second, I do think we need to uh, tighten the sanctions on Putin, make this costly for him, make it costly for the oligarchs. We need to continue to have lethal aid provided to the Ukrainians, and we need to look over our shoulder to make sure that China does not move during this time of, uh, of uncertainty and risk. Well, we do have the giant increase in the price of gas as a result of the invasion of the Ukraine. That certainly came after the Russian invasion and the price of oil on the global market spiked up. The question yeah. is, even if we were to try to reduce energy policy and we made it easier for permitting, Permits take time. None of this is fast. What can be done short term, if anything? I think, first of all, I think we should wean ourselves of any dependence on Russia. Part of that will be offset by uh, production at home. And, um, and the markets will move in part on the signal that uh, more capacity is coming online. But we also ought to uh, encourage uh, our, our, our allies around the world, energy producers in the, in the Middle East, particularly in the Gulf, uh, to increase uh, their uh, production. And uh, we have great relationships there. President Trump forged you know, unprecedented relationships with Saudi Arabia, the, the Emirates and others. And they need, they need to pump more. At the same time, we're pumping more. And that'll put pressure on Putin and it'll reduce prices at the pump. And we can also do it in a way that, uh, that keeps pressure on uh, Putin to sort of turn back on this aggressive stance he's taken, which is really indefensible. Until January, Dave McCormick was CEO of Bridgewater Associates, an investment management firm. Dr. Oz, when on the Fox News rundown last week, said McCormick built the largest foreign-owned hedge fund ever in China, raised $1.3 billion. And Dr. Oz claimed that is building the financial infrastructure of China, which they will use to fund all the things that China's doing, which includes cheating across the board. McCormick's reaction to his Republican rival? This coming from Mehmet Oz is, um, is something. First, it's an attack on my patriotism from a guy who served in the Turkish military and is a dual citizen of Turkey, which is an adversary of ours in bed with Iran, and someone who um, is also a hypocrite, who has made enormous amount of money, a $50 million deal with Asana, 
has been a spokesperson, which is one of the Chinese Communist Party um, government-owned companies. He's um, made a career of, um, of having his words on Chinese television approved by the Chinese propaganda machine. So there's both hypocrisy there and, um, and a lack of integrity. Um, in terms of my China record, I've negotiated at the highest levels of government against China. And then I'm someone who's done business around the world over the last six years as CEO, um, where we invested in 20 countries around the world, including China. And I think we had something like 2% of our business coming from China. And it's a little bit like President Trump. Here's a guy who had business around the world with uh, Russia, China, elsewhere. And he said, that's going to make me a better negotiator. It's going to make me a better president. And I make the same argument to the people of Pennsylvania. That's going to make me a great, strong senator. Now, in terms of what we should do, we should decouple in key industries where we're highly dependent on China, most, most notably pharmaceuticals and semiconductors. It's, it's, it's unbelievable that we're as dependent as we are. 90% of the world's semiconductors are manufactured 90 miles from uh, mainland China. We need to hold China accountable for COVID. Um, we still don't know, haven't gotten to the bottom of that. That's uh, something that killed a million Americans. That's something that was trillions of dollars of value. We, we ought to have reparations or the opportunity for families that had losses to sue China. We ought to also hold China accountable for fentanyl which is manufactured coming across our southern border and killing Pennsylvanians. We ought to continue President Trump's great steps on fair trade, the tariffs, making sure that whatever trade and investment we have with China is fair and on, on fair standing from a subsidies perspective in terms of open markets. And then finally, we need to have a review process that makes sure whatever investment is happening from companies or investors in China is going through a review process to make sure it's not helping the Chinese military. You know, we have Silicon Valley companies, for example, that are investing in artificial intelligence that's helping the Chinese military. We can't have that. When you were in the Bush administration, you were in the Commerce Department, you dealt with G8 nations when Russia was part of the, 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 the club, now that's the G7. You were there as Undersecretary of the Treasury when things went bad and we had a big economic downturn in 2008. Do you see with inflation as it is and with the price of gas and, and wheat and all these things surging with this Russian invasion, do you think we're headed into an economic downturn again, maybe a recession? Well, I think this uh, this inflation challenge is a byproduct of bad policies. And I think it does really pose a risk to us. And as you know, inflation where prices rise faster than wages is a burden on the entire economy. It's a burden on all of us, but it's really a burden on working families. And there's three things that are at the core of this problem. The first we just talked about, which is energy policy. Second, um, the spending, the surge in fiscal spending that came under the Biden administration is being proposed going forward is a direct driver of our, uh, of our inflation challenge. And, um, and the Biden administration is making the argument, this is gonna help, this isn't gonna help. This is the cause of, of the inflation problem we have. And so we have to be more fiscally responsible. And the third thing we need to do is have smarter uh, monetary policy. And uh, you know, Jay Powell, I think has been the reason that we've had easy policy for too long. Uh, there was a time 18 months ago where he could have slowly tightened given that the economy was bouncing back and he didn't. And that's making it much harder now for us to have the kind of monetary policy we need. So we can fix these things. We just need smart, thoughtful, courageous economic policy to do it. You have mentioned former President Trump a few times. The candidate who was in the race that he had endorsed earlier is no longer in the race. You were a Jeb Bush supporter initially in 2016. The former president 
where is he in this race and do you have his support do you seek his support well, I certainly would uh, be delighted to have his support. I know President Trump quite well. I uh, served on a defense advisory board uh, for him that he asked me to serve on during his administration. And my wife worked for him for two years as the deputy national security advisor. I think uh, President Trump uh, did a great job of tapping into uh, this sense of frustration and uh, despair among a hugely forgotten part of our country. I think he set us from a policy perspective on the right direction as a country. I think we're seeing the consequences of going the opposite direction. And so I'm very proud to run on America First agenda, and I'd be delighted to have President Trump's support if he offered it. I'm not sure what he'll do, but certainly this is a big race. and I know he's watching it carefully, and uh, I know he thinks highly of me, so I would, I would be welcome his support if it, if it came. He's taken a lot of criticism for calling Vladimir Putin smart and a genius. Does that concern you, bother you? Well, I, I've certainly I've been in the room a couple times with uh, President Putin, and uh, what I can say about him, I, he he really is a thug, uh, and uh, he's someone who uh, is a bully, and he fills the vacuum uh, if there's weakness. And so it's the it's the lesson we all learn, Dave, on the playground, where if you show weakness, the bully's going to pick on you, and that's what happened in this case, and that's why we need strength. We need strength in the Senate. We need strength in the White House, and uh, and uh, we need to project strength around the world. Dave McCormick is a Republican candidate for Senate in the state of Pennsylvania. Dave, thank you very much for joining us. Hey, good to be with you. Thanks. Did you know that every major diaper company either financially or vocally supports abortion? If that appalls you and you're looking to support a baby brand that aligns with your pro-life, pro-family views, then every life is your solution. Every Life firmly believes that regardless of where someone is from, what they look like, or whether they were planned or unplanned, every baby is a miracle from God worthy of love, protection, and celebration. Every Life offers high-performing, supremely soft, premium diapers and wipes delivered right to your doorstep. Their diapers are crafted without fragrances, dyes, lotions, latex, parabens, or phthalates. And you can feel good knowing that every purchase with Every Life contributes to changing lives through their support of pro-life organizations and pregnancy resource centers. Every Life is not just changing diapers, they're changing lives. Visit everylife.com to learn more. That's everylife.com. And don't forget to use promo code Duffy10 for an exclusive 10% discount on your first order today. This is Kevin Walling with your Fox News commentary coming up. Apple, Microsoft, Samsung, automakers including GM, Ford, and Toyota, Visa, and MasterCard, all limiting or ending sales, shipments, and operations in Russia. Oil and gas companies like BP and Shell have exited stakes in Russian energy companies or ended partnerships with them. Sanctions have been placed on a number of financial institutions, and several Russian banks have been removed from the SWIFT messaging system. Several countries, including the U.S., have banned Russian aircraft from their airspace. Historian and Hoover Institution senior fellow Niall Ferguson told Fox's Steve Hilton, if we can just help Zelensky hold out, right, make sure right. that he has enough hardware to get the Russians properly bogged down in the suburbs of Kiev, then it may not take too long for the Russian economic collapse. Russians are feeling the pain over this war in Ukraine. Russian blogger and YouTuber Andrew Zuev, based in the U.S., told me many of the Russians he knows are in shock. Food is being limited. The prices of cars and electronics have soared. Some ATMs work. 
some don't. And some of his friends, he said, are trying to relocate a business they own to Georgia. He said some people he knows are trying to get out, afraid the Russian government will conscript them into service to fight in Ukraine. Ella Fuchs in Texas told me her father is in Moscow in an area where supermarkets are running low on food and some Russian citizens, especially those with means, are trying to leave the country. Russian people starting to be affected by this war, by the sanctions, by most U.S. and European corporations leaving. Lev Trapolsky is the president of ITA Med in the Bay Area. He left what was then the Soviet Union back when Jimmy Carter was president. And I'm not sure if they're actually considering the negative impact that it's having, not on the Russian government, not on Putin, but on people on the streets, people who are trying to survive and live their normal lives. Oh, interesting. So you get the sense that people are mad at the corporations rather than, I guess, their own leadership. Well, it's a different issue. People that I talk to, they separate the issues. They're saying, yes, uh, we can understand how the West is reacting to the aggression against Ukraine and they're against the war and they're not necessarily supporting President Putin. But they think that's a tremendous overreach by you know a lot of U.S. and European corporations just leaving and cutting them off. And I think that those types of negative feelings by about 145 million people in Russia, they will affect the relationships for many, many, many years to come. I heard from a friend whose father lives in Moscow. He's aging, and she's worried for him because she said the supermarkets are running low on food. And we've heard that there are some issues with some ATMs, some people getting money. What are you hearing about in terms of daily life, like food and money? Well, I know that SWIFT was cut off from the largest Russian banks, but some of the smaller regional banks are still allowed to transfer money back and forth, and they're still participating in the exchanges. In terms of the produce, the food supplies in supermarkets, you know, it's kind of interesting. The imported goods are you know, slowly disappearing. But on the other hand, talking to some of the business leaders that I know in Russia, they say to me that actually it's a good thing in the long run because this type of attitude and approach by the West will force Russian local producers to start producing locally. And uh, Russia will find a way to be eventually to be self-sufficient in food supplies. We've heard and seen reports that web searches for words like emigration, flights, visas have gone up in Russia. Do you get the sense that there's some accuracy to that, that people are trying to leave? I know we were speaking before the interview and you were telling me about what your wife saw and sort of experienced when she was just recently in Armenia. What is your sense yeah. of, of Russians trying to leave Russia? Yeah, my wife just returned from Armenia yesterday. And one of the first things she told me that she was just overwhelmed in Yerevan, seeing how many Russian planes are landing there. And there are thousands and thousands of Russians flooding into Armenia and Yerevan. And of course, the real estate prices and apartment rentals skyrocketed about three to 500% already within just the last 10 to 12 days. And most of the people who are coming to Armenia, at least, they are in the high-tech industry. You know, they're very smart. They're used to good quality of life and high income. And I suppose they're running away because they know that uh, hard times are coming and they, they would like to live in a more stable country. Another thing I know is the situation in Spain because Spain is my sort of second home. And I just talked to my attorney friend in Barcelona 
he told me that they're getting inundated in the last week, 10 days with Russians requesting visas, uh, political asylum, and so on and so forth. So not just Ukrainians. Ukrainians, that's understandable, but also Russians. Yeah, Lev, my final question for you, given the people you speak to, including um, some people in the tech world, including that individual who owned a television station at one time, what is your sense in your conversations about how Russian people feel about this invasion? Is it your sense that there is a, a lot of support for for President Putin and his actions? Wow, uh, that's a tough one, uh, Jessica. It's um, I would say Russians living here in the Bay Area, and there are quite a few of them living here, and huge majority are completely against Putin, against what he's doing. There are many demonstrations, there are many musical concerts where money, a lot of money is collected and sent to support people in Ukraine. So, so overwhelmingly, the Russian immigrants living in the U.S., at least in my area, Northern California, they are against the war and they're against Putin. My understanding of the Russian people in Russia, and again, I can't speak for them, right, because I'm not there, but talking to a few of my friends and doing a lot of research, I see that the situation is a bit different. I think that Putin does enjoy a majority of support in Russia due to various reasons. And one of them is the historical reasoning for what happened and why he did what he did. And that's, I think, for anyone to be able to understand what's happening and why they need to study history and what's been happening between Russia and the West, NATO and U.S. in the last 30 to 45 years. And there is very little talk about that in our media sources here in the United States. Nobody is trying to understand what prompted Putin to act this way. And uh, I think it is important to understand why it happened. While Tripolsky thinks the media here has failed to give us context, he and others note the crackdown on media and social media in Russia. Alina Polyakova is the president of the Center for European Policy Analysis and was born in Kiev when it was a Soviet republic. She says what was left of independent media in a place like Moscow is now gone. You know, over the last several days, the Russian government has moved so aggressively to really close the in information environment for Russians. Um, you know, they've shut down and banned, you know, Facebook, uh, Twitter, uh, TikTok has now uh, made an announcement that it's not going to be operating any longer anymore. There's Instagram is still there, but I think it's really just a matter of days until they're shut down. And they're also making moves to completely shut down YouTube now. So all these sources of you know, more independent information, really the entire free speech ecosystem is being closed down by the Russian government. And what's most worrying just over the last few days, uh, the Russian Duma, uh, the parliament rubber stamped this really draconian law that basically says, um, anyone who is found to say anything disparaging about the Russian military or to use you know, words like war, which uh, the Russian government has uh, not prohibited media outlets from using, um, might face high fines or even up to 15 years in prison. So really what we're seeing is Russia becoming almost like North Korea at this point, um, where there's complete information control. You know, Russians who are seeking information you know, they're still getting it from encrypted uh, apps like Telegram, mm -hmm. for example. They're still operating. But increasingly, it's becoming very, very difficult uh, for Russians who are looking for non-governmental sources to find it. Alina, the, the former Echo Moscow reporter and others have said that many Russians do support 
Vladimir Putin, that they do believe this is Russia defending itself against NATO and that Ukraine threatened Russia without, you know, the independent media, I guess, that, that many are just sort of believing what they're told, right? They don't necessarily understand why all these corporations are boycotting them necessarily and why so many things aren't working the way they used to. Is that accurate? I mean, what is your sense of where Russians are on this? Right. I mean, it's hard probably for us in the United States or other democratic countries to imagine when we have so much information, probably too much information, (laughs) um, that really in Russia for at least two decades now, um, most Russians have de facto been brainwashed uh, by their own government. Um, And the vast majority of Russians, about two thirds, still get most of their information from television. And television is completely controlled by the state and has been this way uh, for a very long time. This was one of the first things Mr. Putin did when he came to power um, in the year 2000 was to bring media under state control. And so what's become just truly absurd is the many stories we've not been hearing uh, of, you know, Russians who have close relatives in Ukraine. You know, many people have close relatives uh, in Ukraine and Russia um, who call um, or have conversations with their relatives and their relatives are saying, you know, we're being bombarded. People are dying and they don't believe that they don't they don't believe their own blood. That's how powerful this propaganda machine has become. And I think that is the main reason why we're seeing approval ratings from Mr. Putin actually get higher over the course of this war. I spoke with someone on WhatsApp who was referred to me by a friend, and he's in Moscow, and he declined to be interviewed. He said there's a lot of fake news going around, family members fighting, that he has people in his life on both sides of this war, so he wants to wait before weighing in. And I asked my friend who referred me to him, how he feels, because I, I, I said to her, I thought you were referring him to me for an, for an interview, and he declined. And she said, well, he's probably scared um, that he told her many of his friends have left Russia and that he's thinking of leaving too. He didn't say that to me, but he said that to her. What is your sense of the fear level, and what is your sense of people leaving or wanting to leave? In Russia today, uh, there's so many stories, um, especially the last uh, 12 days since the war began, of people posting something on their social media and then the police showing up at their door in several hours. And so we don't know what the exact numbers are of people coming out of Russia, but my understanding of talking to people is that these numbers are pretty big. And who's leaving, of course? Um, Well, it's the most talented, the most educated, the most skilled uh, Russians who understand what's happening um, in their country. Many do not, as you, as you absolutely correctly said, and who are afraid for their lives as well because they're afraid that they might get thrown in jail for posting something on Instagram or even saying something to a friend who you know might be so brainwashed that they'll go to the police. I mean, we're really seeing kind of a reemergence of this police state that we thought was long dead in history during the Soviet era where people mm. were informants on their neighbors. Uh, But yeah, even personal conversations, people are now afraid to have because they just don't know who to trust anymore. Wow. So interesting. Alina Polyakova, thank you so much for your time. It was my pleasure. Thank you. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Stay on top of the latest news and information from Fox News. Listen and download the Fox News Hourly Update on your time. The trending stories you need anytime you want it. Listen and download now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Rate and review the Fox News Rundown on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. 
It's time for your Fox News commentary. Kevin Walling. What's on your mind? When President Barack Obama nominated Ketanji Brown Jackson to serve as a judge for the U.S. District Court for the District of Columbia in 2012, she was introduced by an unlikely advocate before the Senate Judiciary Committee. Representative Paul Ryan, a relative through marriage, said of Jackson, quote, our politics may differ, but my praise for Ketanji's intellect, for her character, for her integrity is unequivocal. Ryan added, quote, she's an amazing person, and I favorably recommend her consideration. Jackson was confirmed by a bipartisan voice vote on the floor of the U.S. Senate in 2013, and Ryan would become the 54th Speaker of the House in 2015. Last April, President Joe Biden nominated Jackson to the seat being vacated by Attorney General Merrick Garland on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit, and she was confirmed by a bipartisan majority that included Senators Lindsey Graham, Susan Collins, and Lisa Murkowski. When Jackson is confirmed to the Supreme Court, she will be in good company, making the jump from the D.C. Circuit. Chief Justice John Roberts and Associate Justices Clarence Thomas and Brett Kavanaugh were judges on that bench before their promotions. It's also worth noting that both former Justices Antonin Scalia and Ruth Bader Ginsburg made the same transition to the nation's highest court. When President Biden announced his intention to appoint the first black female jurist to the bench during the 2020 Democratic primary, many campaign observers dismissed the pledge as political posturing meant to rally African-American voters who would be key to his election. With Justice Breyer announcing his retirement earlier this year, we saw the flurry of attacks intensify from conservative circles that somehow Biden's campaign promise would deliver an unqualified nominee to the bench. That could not be further from the truth with regards to Judge Jackson, who has nearly nine years of prior judicial experience, which is more than four current justices, Thomas, Roberts, Elena Kagan, and Amy Coney Barrett had combined. It's worth noting that during the 1980 general election, Ronald Reagan made a similar pledge to appoint the first woman to the Supreme Court. And with the death of Justice Ginsburg in 2020, President Trump announced he would replace her with a woman, eventually nominating Barrett. It would take 178 years after our nation's founding for the first non-white man to be appointed and confirmed to the Supreme Court with the nomination of Thurgood Marshall in 1967. When Sandra Day O'Connor joined the highest court in the land, more than 192 years had passed. Now, 233 years after our founding, the Supreme Court is set to see the first black woman jurist in Judge Jackson joining its ranks. We as Americans deserve the most qualified and experienced judges ruling on our behalf. Judge Ketanji Brown Jackson has the intellect, character, and integrity to serve on the highest court in the land. But don't take my word for it. Take Speaker Paul Ryan's. I'm Kevin Walling, former Biden campaign surrogate. You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown. Rundown. Stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. Guy Benson. Join me weekdays at 3 p.m. Eastern as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and guests. Listen live on the Fox News app or get the free podcast at GuyBensonShow.com. Listen to the all-new Brett Bear podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Bear favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at FoxNewsPodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts.